The American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting 2022 took place on the 3rd to the 7th of June in Chicago, Illinois. We had loads of great updates and discussions during the meeting and spoke to the presenters of some of the biggest trials. In this podcast, we're going through some of the highlights from our interviews with leading experts in lung cancer. First, we spoke to Nigris Duma of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute about the challenges faced by women with lung cancer. So when we talk about women with lung cancer, there's two important things we have to talk about. One is the incidence. Since 2018, the number of cases of lung cancer in younger women, these are less than 40, have increased. And since 2018, for the first time, there is more younger women with lung cancer than men. And why is this important? Well, when you combine breast, uterine, ovarian, and cervical cancer, there's still less deaths than women that die of lung cancer. But we don't talk about it. Right, so there's a survey of a thousand women that was conducted by the American Lung Association and only 1% of that 1,000 women thought that lung cancer was a cause of death on women, when in fact it's the number one cause. So one of the challenges is the lack of knowledge about it. So many younger women with lung cancer face delays in diagnosis. I have patients that have mammograms before they have a chest X-ray. I have patients that have been diagnosed with sarcoidosis. And the one that actually really obsessed me is the one that's attached to gender bias. And it's when a woman comes to the primary care office and says, oh, I'm very short of breath. I think I have some heavy weight in my chest. The first thing they're told is, that must be anxiety. So that's just very linked to gender bias. And women take two to three times longer to be diagnosed with lung cancer. And the consequences of that is the majority being diagnosed with stage four or incurable disease. The second aspect of lung cancer in women is that they were not included in the clinical trials. So a lot of the data that we're using to treat women is extrapolated for a majority white male population. So there is difference in tolerability. Women are more likely to have side effects. And lastly, the genetic composition of lung cancer in women is very different. To finish and wrap up this question, when you remove smoking, as a smoking as a confounder, two thirds of the cases of lung cancer are in women. And that shows that lung cancer, in fact, is a disease of women. We also heard from several experts on recent developments in treatments for cryosmutated non-small cell lung cancer. Lisa Villarouz of the University of Pittsburgh took us through some of the current treatment strategies for CRAS G12C mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, so KRAS G12C I think is one of the most um, encouraging areas of genomically driven lung cancer currently in ter- just in terms of the number of therapies that are on the horizon and the number of therapies for which we have um, growing evidence in terms of the clinical data um, just within the past couple of years. Um, it's the most common oncogenic driver in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer of adenocarcinostology and was inactionable literally for decades. We now have sotoracid, and there was a, a, ben, a long-term update in terms of um, the phase one and two data presented at AACR last year. And then here at this conference, we actually have updates with adagrasib. Um, in previously treated metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with very encouraging data in terms of responses. Um, and actually, there will also be data with regard to adagrasive single agent activity in patients with untreated brain mets, which we all look forward to this evening. Gia Luo of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute then discussed the role of immunotherapy for cras-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. 
So currently, um, for an individual with a new diagnosis of advanced KRAS, meaning non-small cell lung cancer, we would recommend individuals start with immunotherapy-based treatments since um, there is um, benefit in KRAS mutant lung cancer. I think um, in the near future, we'll have to figure out how to integrate these KRAS inhibitors. When should we do it up front? When should we do it later? And I think right now we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out um, what sorts of individuals, potentially individuals who have both KRAS and STK11 um, might benefit from these drugs earlier. And so we're trying to do a lot of research in the field to, to tease apart those challenging questions. A key trial for cryosmutated non-small cell lung cancer at ASCO 2022 was the CRYSTAL-1 trial. Joshua Sabari of NYU Langone discussed this trial which looked at adagracid for patients with CRAS G12C mutated non-small cell lung cancer who also had central nervous system metastases. So the CRYSTAL-1 study is a uh, large registrational phase 1-2 uh, study uh, for patients with non-small cell lung cancer as well as other cancers with KRAS G12C mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So my colleague, Dr. Alex Spira, is going to be presenting data on the efficacy of adagrasib, formerly known as MRTX849, which is a KRAS G12C specific inhibitor in patients with non-small cell lung cancer who have progressed on prior lines of therapy. There is already an FDA-approved KRAS G12C inhibitor here with sotoracid, formerly known as AMG510. Response rate there was 37.1%, you know, median progression-free survival about 6.8 months, and median overall survival 12.5 months. But that showed the con proof of concept that we can drug KRAS G12C, which has been undruggable for many years. Adagrasib is a novel KRAS G12C inhibitor. It has 24-hour um, um, you know, half-life, so long half-life, PK-dependent um, um, uh, dosing, and interestingly, very good CNS penetration. So Dr. Alex Spire, my colleague, uh, will show that the response rate in our study was 43%, median progression-free survival 6.5 months, as well as a median overall survival of 12.6 months. What's interesting is if you look at the patients who had one scan or more uh, evaluable, uh, response rate went up uh, to 50%. So quite an interesting uh, data set. Uh, we also saw that in patients who had treated brain metastasis, the response rate was 33% by a blinded independent committee review. So the presentation that I'm giving is on the uh, data for active untreated brain metastasis. So we had a cohort of 25 patients. This is on the same study, the CRYSTAL-1, cohort 1B, where we looked at patients who had active untreated brain metastasis, and we looked at the efficacy of adagrasib, uh, the KRAS G12C inhibitor. And what we found was that the response rate was quite high, 32%, so equivalent to what we saw in the treated brain metastasis patient population, median progression-free survival in the four to five month range, and we did not reach yet median overall survival. The reason why this is so important is we know that patients who have brain metastasis tend to have very poor prognosis. So median overall survival for patients with KRAS G12C mutant lung cancer is about five months who have active untreated brain metastasis. So the data is quite exciting uh, for this patient population. We also looked at specific you know, uh, intracranial uh, dose uh, of the drug or CSF concentrations, and there's a concept called KPUU, uh, where similar agents in the EGFR and ALK population have KPUUs that range from 0.4 to 0.9, drugs such as osimertinib in the EGFR space, alectinib and lorlatinib in the uh, ALK rearranged space. And these are drugs that have phenomenal CNS intracranial activity. Uh, we looked at two patients uh, doing lumbar punctures, the CSF, to identify the KPUU of adagrasin 
suppressive, and it was 0.47, so equally as good as some of these other uh, inhibitors that are approved. So really excited about this data, potentially opportunity uh, to help patients uh, in the future. Another hot topic at ASCO was the use of biomarker testing and genetic profiling. Matthew Krebs from the Christie NHS Foundation Trust took us through the current state of genetic profiling for lung cancer in the UK. Actually, the UK is in a really good position with genomic profiling. The um, NHS Genomics Medicine Service has, has been in place now for some time and it allows access to patients with all sorts of uh, cancers to get genomic profiling on the NHS. And for lung cancer, we're in a really good position. Uh, most places in the UK now are offering next generation sequencing for lung cancer patients, which covers all the actionable genomic alterations. So EGFR, ALK, ROS, RET, and MET as well. Um, so that's offered up front for all patients. The limitations can be whether there's enough tissue available from the biopsies. So really important we get decent sized biopsies from patients. That said, that can be challenging depending on where the cancer is and how easy it is to access. Um, so that can be a slight limitation. And sometimes if there's not enough tissue, we can't get to do that full NGS panel and might just be restricted to things like EGFR and ALK and ROS. Uh, so the tissue is really important. The other, the other aspect is being able to turn around the results in a, in a good time frame. At the moment, it can take a few weeks to get all the results back. Uh, we need to work on just reducing that time a little bit. And the NHS is working really hard to do that. And, will achieve that. And I guess the final thing to say that uh, the great thing currently in the UK is we're running a pilot through NHS England to try circulating tumour DNA as well in lung cancer patients to see whether uh, that can shorten the time to getting results back and make quicker decisions for our patients in terms of selecting the right treatment for them. There were several trial updates in lung cancer at ASCO this year. Jarushka Naidu from John Hopkins University explained a post-hoc subgroup analysis from Pacific trial. The Pacific study, as we know, is a phase three randomized study uh, examining the role of maintenance immunotherapy with duvalumab for a year compared to placebo in, in patients with stage three non-small cell lung cancer after definitive chemoradiation. And we now have five-year data to show that there is a overall survival and a progression-free survival benefit of giving immunotherapy in the setting. One of the open questions is whether patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer who have stage three disease benefit from this approach or if they have different levels of toxicity. So this study is a post hoc exploratory analysis examining 35 patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer who were enrolled on Pacific. And broadly what it shows is the median progression-free survival and median overall survival of patients in this EGFR mutant subset was similar if they were treated with either duvalumab or placebo. And then in terms of toxicity, again, very similar incidence of radiation pneumonitis at 42% versus 36% for duvalumab versus placebo, um, and 17% versus 18% um, of all-cause pneumonitis. Um, that's not specifically related to radiation. So I think this gives us an early look at prospective data. Uh, it doesn't answer the question completely as to whether these patients benefit or not, or if they're different toxicity rates, but it's the prospective data set that we have, and it's something that I think will support oncologists in helping them to decide whether they would like to treat patients with immunotherapy or not. We also heard from Matthew Krebs on the updated results from the Phase 1 Chrysalis trial. This is a study using amivantamab, which is a, a drug that targets 
It's a bispecific antibody that targets both EGFR and MET. Now, previously, we've shown some data that this drug can work in patients with EGFR exon 20 insertion, and it's now licensing that indication for patient non-small cell lung cancer patients in the post-platinum setting. Uh, and we've seen response rates of uh, 40% uh, and duration of response for 11.1 months in that setting. But because the drug binds to both EGFR and MET, we're really keen to explore the drug for MET-driven disease as well. So that's been the focus of the, the updated data we're presenting at this conference. So MET exon 14 skipping mutations uh, occur in about 3% of non-small cell lung cancer patients. There are currently uh, two tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, with FDA-accelerated approval. Uh, that's tapotinib and capmatinib, um, where response rates are around about 41 to 43% for previously treated patients. But this drug, amivantamab, works in a different way. It's the antibody, as I've described, rather than a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, and um, the Chrysalis study was multi-center, multi-cohort, and the cohort we presented here is specifically for the Metexon 14 mutated uh, patients, of which we've had 55 patients recruited so far. Recruitment is ongoing. And the bottom line is the population that we recruited was very typical for Metexon 14, uh, median age of 70, slightly more females than males. Um, actually, a 50-50 split between smokers and non-smokers. People often associate genomically driven disease with non-smokers, but actually I think we can see that it's also present in non-smokers here. And the overall response rate was 33% across the entire cohort of patients. But if we look according to previous treatment, uh, those who had, had no prior treatment at all had an overall response rate of 57%. And for patients who'd had previous treatment but no prior MET inhibitor, the overall response rate was 47%. So if, if we look um, at those patients who are earlier in their treatment pathway and not sort of a, a heavily pretreated population, the response rates look really promising and those responses are durable as well. And so really promising data. It really shows this drug works in met, in met driven disease as well as EDFR exon 20 and will continue recruitment into this cohort. And I guess perhaps the only other thing to say is the toxicity profile is very much in keeping with what we've seen for other patients treated with um, amivantamab on chrysalis safety data for over 400 patients and the profile is very similar in this cohort predominantly grade one to two um, overall well tolerated uh, and no new safety signals were identified melissa johnson of sarah cannon research institute took us through several trials including the cityscape trial which was presented initially at asco 2020. The Cityscape data was reported at ASCO in 2020, which was during the virtual ASCO. And uh, it's a randomized phase two trial in which patients uh, with newly diagnosed lung cancer were treated with the PDL1 atezolizumab plus tirigolumab, an anti-tigit antibody versus atezolizumab alone. All patients were in, in uh, all patient or all levels of PDL1. Uh, were allowed in the trial. And essentially what the trial showed was that patients that were treated with the combination, a tezotirigolumab, had better response as well as progression-free survival. And when we looked a little bit deeper, we found that it was patients that had higher levels of pdl one expression in their tumor that did the best with the combination. And so this combination has gone forward in SKY1, uh, a randomized phase three trial enrolling patients whose tumors express pdl one at high levels, 50% and higher. 
Uh, we've heard just one press release uh, about the PFS from this trial, but we await the overall uh, survival results uh, for Skyscraper 1. Dr. Johnson also discussed the use of HPN328, a tri-specific T-cell engager in small cell lung cancer. Tomorrow I'll present a poster uh, on this tri-specific uh, T-cell engager made by Harpoon. Uh, it's a DLL3 specific, uh, uh, tri-specific that also binds to uh, T-cells, stimulates uh, the T-cells and introduces them into the tumor. Uh, so we've treated about th uh, three different dose levels. We have had a couple uh, partial responses um, and some other patients with uh, target lesion shrinkage. And so the dose escalation continues. Um, it's been well tolerated with uh, manageable cytokine release. Finally, we heard from Alessandra Beers of the CRO National Cancer Institute in Italy on the phase three crown trial. On behalf of the investigators of the phase three crown trial, um, we presented data, I presented the data about uh, the comprehensive genomic uh, um, analysis, both uh, in the ctDNA and tumor tissue. And um, um, the crown phase trial was a um, trial exploring the role of lorlatinib in comparison with uh, crisotinib in previously treated ALK fusion positive uh, advanced non-smocellan cancer and uh, lorlatinib uh, improved uh, the PFS uh, versus crizotinib and um, we uh, identify molecular correlates of response uh, and uh, in particular um, the PFS of lorlatinib was much superior, <coughs> of, um, significantly superior than the PFS in the crisotinib arm, irrespectively of the EMR4-ALK variants, and both in the ctDNA and in the tumor tissue and uh, was uh, um, significantly superior uh, even uh, in patients with uh, um, bypass pre-existing uh, um, aberrations like uh, MAP, uh, MAP kinase or RTK or uh, PI3 kinase uh, um, mTOR and uh, um, was uh, significantly superior even in patients uh, with the TP53 uh, positive mutation, although um, the presence of a, a mutation in the TP53 might reduce uh, slightly the efficacy of lorlatinib. So the strength of uh, lorlatinib as first-line treatment for these patients has been uh, um, demonstrated by the strength of the PFS, but also by the evidence that uh, uh, the efficacy is uh, irrespective of uh, the ALK variants, TP53 maybe, and uh, also uh, bypass pre-existing mutations. That wraps up our highlights in lung cancer from ASCO 2022. We have lots more interviews from experts in lung cancer and beyond on vjoncology.com, so be sure to explore. And stay tuned for more podcasts covering the highlights from ASCO 2022. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates in oncology.